I have a letter here from John. He's one of the first apostles to our church. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, who will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I, not, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who was chosen by God, send their greetings. Thank you, Jason. So, uh... I know as I hold this up, if you are, I don't know, younger than me, you probably don't even know what this is. But uh, since, since a lot of things have come into the world, such as email and texting and Skype and instant messaging and Facebook, there was a time before all of that, boys and girls, where people did something called writing letters. So that's what this is. People would have this primitive practice where they would take a piece of paper, maybe two pages. They would just write a few thoughts down. And uh, then they would fold it up, put it in an envelope, send it in the mail, and they would wait days, weeks, even months for a response. Can you say delayed gratification, boys and girls? Good, I knew you could. Yeah, this is actually, I was going through some of my grandma and grandpa's stuff after they passed away. This is a letter that my uncle, Little Harry, wrote from World War II. My grandpa had Little Harry long before the rest of my mom and my uncles. So Little Harry was actually as old as the rest of my grandparents. Uh, He was from grandpa's first marriage before that wife died. So little Harry is in World War II. Just picture him. He's like a 20-year-old kid writing back home in 1942. And he says to my grandpa, he says, just received your letter. I'm sure glad to hear from you again. And then he says this, so I have a brother. That's fine. I've always wanted one. He goes on. He says how thrilled he is that he's a redhead. He's talking about my Uncle Bruce, who is like already, I love my Uncle Bruce, but he's already like lived a whole life and passed away. And so I'm just, it's just wild reading this letter. And then he says this, congratulations. One more thing. By the time I get home, how about a sister? I need one of them too. Which happened? My mom was born in 1946, another redhead. So it was just really bizarre to read these letters from so long ago, these communications between different people. You got your Bible. Would you turn to another letter in your Bible? It's 2 John, 2 John. If you go to the end of your Bible to Revelation, you just hang a few pages back and you're going to find 2 John. And as you look at it, I understand that it's just one more page in your Bible. In fact, it's not even a whole page. It's like, what, a half page? But don't see it as it looks right now. It's just one more page in a collection of books. Look at it as originally it was. It was a letter that someone wrote 
to someone else. They took paper and they scratched down some thoughts, and that's what we have here in the Bible. It was originally a letter in an envelope. Now, as you write a letter, you know that there's always somebody who wrote the letter, and the letter was written to somebody else. So who wrote this letter? Well, we find it right there in verse 1, right? It says, the elder, which clears everything up. Oh, it's the elder. No. Who's the elder? John. We know this is the apostle John. About 50, 60, 70 years before he wrote this little postcard of a letter, he was the apostle John who followed Jesus during his life and ministry. He was a much younger man at that time. The John of his, I don't know, 20s or 30s was a very competitive, feisty man. And say, well, how do you know that? Just some of the things that happened in his life. He and his brother James were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Sounds like a motorcycle gang, doesn't it? Sons of Anarchy, Sons of Thunder. One time, Jesus and his disciples were going through the region called Samaria, and a Samaritan city refused to let Jesus and the disciples pass through. James and John come up to Jesus like, Hey, Jesus, you want us to like, call down fire from heaven and destroy this city? And this is in Luke chapter 9. And Jesus is like, No, I do not want you to call down fire from this, on this city. Now, quit being dumb. Get behind me. Let's go. He rebuked them. So John, as a young man, is like this competitive, feisty guy. He had a hot temper, maybe. But you can't spend that much time with Jesus and not have Jesus' ways rub off on you. John learned to love people like Jesus did. He got a lot of his rough edges knocked off. So by the time he writes this letter, he is an old, gentle, wise man that everyone respects and loves. He says things like this in verse 5 of 2 John. I ask that we love one another. At this point, as he writes this, this uh, postcard, he is the last living apostle. He may be like 90 years old at this point. All the other apostles have been murdered. They've been martyred for their faith. So he's the last one. He's venerated. He is respected by everyone in the church and out. Uh, very well respected. He's like the Billy Graham of his day times 10. He's the Rick Warren. He's just somebody that everybody looked up to and respected. He starts churches. He trains pastors. So that's who wrote the letter. Who is John writing this letter to? Again, it says in verse 1, it doesn't really say her name, it's, but it is a her. He says, to the chosen lady and her children who I love in the truth. I don't know who she was. She may have been a mom in one of the churches that, that John started who just opened her home and her family and gave hospitality to John and other church leaders. It, John knows her sister apparently because down in verse 13 he says, hey, your nieces and nephews say to tell you hi. So it's somebody that John knows, somebody he cares about, some people think that John actually wrote this to a whole church of people, the chosen lady being a church. could be. Either way, we know that this letter got shared and got copied and passed around because we've got it now. So you have this elderly, venerated apostle taking time to write a letter to this woman in this church. Why? I guess the bigger question is, why is it in the Bible, right? I mean, it's not unusual. You write a letter to somebody you care about, but why did a letter that John wrote end up in the Bible? He probably wrote lots of other letters and postcards that didn't end up in the Bible. Why is it here? Well, John's got something on his mind. Something's bothering him, and here's the tip-off. Five times in the first three sentences, John says something about truth. That's your tip-off to why he's writing this letter. He's very concerned He's writing to a lady he cares about, and he's concerned that she and other Christians like her not be deceived and not be lied to and not be taken advantage of. You get the idea just from this short letter. John's friend is a very hospitable person. And that was the hallmark of the early church, by the way. The, the Christians were known for their love for one another. They were known for their hospitality. Christian leaders and missionaries would go out from their home church, and they would go start new churches. And along the way, they would stay in people's homes who were Christians. So it was not unusual, and people took note of the fact that Christians had this great love and this hospitality for other people, financial support. 
there were unscrupulous people who saw that and saw a way to take advantage of that for their own profit and their own gain. So as John writes this, as Christianity is taking root and expanding, these unscrupulous people are starting to take note of the Christian habit. He says this in verse 7. He's very clear, very blunt about why he's writing this letter to her. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So he's warning her about these people who are out there in the world. He says not everybody is as good as they look. He wrote this to some other friends as well, warning them. If, you, if you're in Second John, you can just flip back one page to First John. He wrote the same warning to his friends there. This is First John 4, 1. He says, friends, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I want to just read this verse again in the message version. It just makes so much sense. The, the paraphrase there is, my dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers loose in the world. And so here's the warning that John is giving his friend. The warning is, not everyone who claims to be a Christian or a Christian leader or a Christian teacher actually is. Don't take everyone at face value just because they claim to be a Christian teacher or leader. Don't be deceived. I read about this students at the University of North Carolina who were doing some lab research. They were learning to do DNA analysis. And so their professor brought them different samples of fish that he bought at the grocery store, and he put it in front of them. And they would run DNA analysis on it to determine what kind of a fish it was. Well, they had one fish in in front of them. As they analyzed it, the label said that it was expensive red snapper. They ran the DNA. The results came back. This is not red snapper. The DNA analysis actually came back. It was a far cheaper fish called grunt, grunt fish. So they did the DNA. They're like, what's going on here? Why is this coming back? This Out in the, uh, the Atlantic Bank, there are several fish that are quite similar. You've got the red snapper, but you've also got the grunt fish. You've got sheep's head. You've got porgy. All these fish are very similar once you fillet them down and you just have a package of fish. And they do, they do look as similar. But... The porgies and the grunts and the sheep said they're a lot cheaper than red snapper, probably because they don't have a cool name like red snapper. So they're a lot cheaper. They're not as desirable, so they're not as expensive. And really, honestly, who wants to eat a grunt anyway, right? It doesn't sound very appetizing. So what the local fishmonger was doing was he was taking these cheaper fish, slapping a red snapper label on it, and charging more. Honestly, you probably can't tell the difference in taste when you're eating them. But that's not what people were paying for. From paying for red snapper, I expect to get red snapper, right? Tim Duffy is a consumer advocate, and he says this kind of thing happens all the time, mislabeling food product. He said he once bought a package of Atlantic cod, and down on the bottom of the package it said product of China. Now, I'm not real good at geography, but I'm pretty sure the Atlantic Ocean doesn't go all the way to China. Sometimes this is just an accident. Sometimes it's just mislabeling. Sometimes, though, it's intentional because he says the profits that can be had by mislabeling food are greater than they even find in the drug business. So when we come back to the Apostle John, just like that there is fraud in the food industry and so many other places, John says there's also fraud even sometimes in the church and among church leaders. So be very careful who you listen to. There are deceivers out there, so don't take everything at face value. Just because somebody talks about God and, and talks a good game and carries the Bible doesn't mean that they're really a Christian. You know, Kyle Sackett taught last week, and he taught out of Jude, another one-hit wonder, one-chapter book of the Bible, and he did a really good job of bringing out this. Like Jude, in his letter, warns his friends. He says in Jude 4, 
a certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped among you. Now I want to read another paraphrase of this verse from the contemporary English version. He says, some godless people have sneaked among you. And here's what they're saying. God treats us so much better than we deserve, so it's okay to be immoral. Does that sound like a Christian teaching to you? He's, Jude goes on to say, they even deny that we must obey Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord. See, what you've got here are godless people infiltrating the church for their own purposes and for their own gain, whether it's financial or otherwise. And so you've got to be aware of that. The Apostle Paul warned his friends in the church at Rome about the same kind of thing. This is just an ongoing theme. You see this in Romans 16. He said, one final word of counsel, friends. Keep a sharp eye out for those who take bits and pieces of the teaching you've learned and then use them to make trouble. Give these people a wide berth. They have no intention of living for our master Christ. They're only in this for what they can get out of it, and they aren't above using pious sweet talk to dupe unsuspecting innocence. And I don't know about you, but my first gut reaction is this. Would people really do that? Would people sneak into the church just to deceive people? Absolutely. Unfortunately, it is absolutely true that people will do that. The warning that Paul gave his friends in the church at Rome, the warning that Jude gave his friends, the warning that that John is giving his friends as a warning that we need to heed as well. There are today Christian teachers and t- Christian leaders who are only in it for their own personal gain. They are not teaching the truth for whatever reason. So be careful, John would tell us, even in 2013, who you open your home to, who you open your heart to, who you open your mind to. Be very careful who you let teach you and who you let influence you. And John says there's a lot at stake here. There are very serious consequences to following the wrong leader or teacher. He says it this way in verse 8 to his friend. He says, watch out that you don't lose what you've worked for. Watch out that your faith in Christ is not affected. There's a lot at stake here, and here's why. Beliefs have real consequences in the real world. And when you believe something that is untrue, believing that could be hurtful, dangerous, and destructive to you. Believing something that is untrue about Jesus Christ can be destructive to your faith in Christ. So be very careful. I remember once when, when I was just a little kid, I'm talking like preschool, kindergarten, my parents and my family was invited over to some friend's house for a barbecue. So we show up at several, several of my, friends, my parents' friends, the circle they ran in, they're all there. These uh, friends of my parents were renovating their house, so they wanted everybody to come over and see it. So we're all there, and I just got to give you a little background on this couple. They were strange. This is the 70s at this time, but they still lived in the 60s. They had all kinds of weird beliefs about a lot of things, about raising their kids and, and everything. So we weren't there very long, maybe 20, 30 minutes. And my, I still remember this. My mom coming to my dad and saying, we've got to go now. So we, we haven't even eaten yet. And we, we leave, which was not unusual. And no, none of the friends would have picked up on this because my dad worked at the hospital, constantly called in for emergencies. So leaving things early was not unusual. But we get in the car, and I'm in the back seat. I'm like, what's going on? My, my dad goes, what was that all about? My mom says, I was in the kitchen with Donna. She's the host. And um, she was cooking some stuff, making some stuff. And then one of her little boys walked in. He had a poopy diaper. She changed him right there in the kitchen. I'm getting grossed out right there. And my mom goes on. She says, she changed him in there. And then she did not wash her hands. She immediately went back to pulling meat out and pulling hamburgers together. And put. I was five years old, and I was grossed out by that. Apparently, one of these people's weird beliefs is that germs don't matter. Thankfully, my parents do believe that germs matter, so we left the party. <laughs> I'm still thankful for that. You know, beliefs have real consequences in the real world. Untrue beliefs can be hurtful and destructive to you, to your health and maybe your spirituality. Like, I feel like my job as a dad, Kirsten's job as a mom, your job as a parent, teach our kids the truth, right? 
point out the things that they need to know. But I feel like part of my job as a dad, too, is to protect my children from things that are not true that people will try to tell them in the world. Like, I don't care. Wash your hands. I don't care if other people say it doesn't really matter. You, germs do matter. Wash your hands. There is no such thing as a five-second rule, okay? Germs will get on there. So I teach them the things that are not true. I've taught my girls what this is. Do you all know what this is? If it's three, let it be, right? I don't know what poison ivy does to your skin, but my family and the genetics I passed on to my girls, it does horrible things to our skin, so we don't want to touch that. I've taught my girls the truth about poison ivy. I've also taught them, sorry, Kirsten, there are some people out there who will say, oh, if you eat a little bit of poison ivy leaves, that you'll build up an immunity. That is not true. I don't know that from personal experience, but I've seen dermatological studies who say that is not true. But we have seen what happens to someone who does put poison ivy in their mouth. You don't want to see that. That poor girl's lips, oh my gosh. So I'm going to teach my kids the truth about poison ivy. I'm going to teach them the lies that are out there. Okay? As a pastor, I feel like it's my job, our elders in our church, it's our job to teach you the truth, to make sure the truth is being taught in our life groups and in every other way. But I feel like it's also my job to teach you the lies that are out there so that we don't get sucked into believing something that is untrue about Jesus that can be hurtful and destructive and dangerous to our faith in him. See, how do you know, though, that, like, I'm telling you the truth? How, where's the DNA test that tells you this is a good teacher and, and this one is not? Where's the test that you can run to say, this, this person's just out for their own gain, they're not teaching you the truth, they're not setting a good example? Where is that? Well, John gives it to us. It's in verse 9. It just very clearly spells it out. He says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. There's your teaching. There's your test right there. Anyone who does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever continues in the teaching of Christ does have both the Father and the Son. That's your test right there. What is this person's teaching about Jesus? If someone comes along and teaches something untrue about Christ, it's not going to match up to the authoritative teaching of the Bible. So our test is, does this person's teaching adhere to the biblical teaching of Jesus and about Jesus? Does it match up? All the things that Jesus taught, does this person agree with that? All the things the Bible teaches us about Jesus, does this person agree with that? Or do they have a different twist on some of it that doesn't match up with what the Bible says? See, there, here's the real dividing line between good teachers and bad teachers. We have an authoritative teaching from Jesus and about Jesus, and it was brought to us by eyewitnesses who actually spent three and a half years with Jesus. We call them the apostles. That's why Jesus selected them. Now you may think, well, the apostles, the 12 apostles, they were chosen because they were deeply spiritual and they were just the good people and really smart. They may have been all those things, but that's not why Jesus selected them. That's not why we hold them up. The 12 apostles were eyewitnesses who were able to go say, I saw this firsthand. I listened to Jesus when he taught this. This is what he said. I saw when he did that miracle because I was standing there and this is what happened. I watched him be crucified. I watched him be buried. I saw him three days later alive. I am an eyewitness. I'm not telling you what somebody else heard or saw. I, as an eyewitness, am telling you what he said. And that's why what we have in the Bible is so authoritative. This is why it's going to matter. We're going to get to this in a minute, as the false teachers who would come along later. You're arguing with eyewitness testimony of somebody who was actually there. This is the DNA test right here for a good teacher versus a bad now, John wrote this again. He wrote this in his letter called 1 John. He said, here's how you test for the genuine spirit of God. This is 1 John 4, 2. He said, 
Everyone who confesses openly his faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as an actual flesh and blood person, that's going to be important here in a second, comes from God and belongs to God. And everyone who refuses to confess faith in Jesus has nothing in common with God. That's your test right there. 1 John 4, 6 says we are from God. John is talking about himself. We apostles, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. John says, look, we were actually with Jesus. Touched him, we ate with him, we hang out with him, we watched the miracles. We were there, we're eyewitnesses. This is the genuine teaching of Christ. And as he told his friends, don't run ahead of that. Don't somehow get the idea that there's some more teaching about Jesus that's out there that you're missing out on. We've given you everything. We were right there. Now, is that actually a problem, though? Do people actually go out and look for other teachings about Jesus that are, than are what in the Bible? Does that, like, mess people's lives up even today? Actually, and unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. Beliefs have consequences. Untrue beliefs are dangerous and destructive. And if you need an example of that, if you're ever out in Oakland, California, I would invite you to just take a detour to the Evergreen Cemetery. If you do go in the cemetery, you're going to look for a very simple marker where 409 Californians are buried in one spot, one little spot. They're all buried in wood boxes. Many of them are infants and children. These 409 Californians were a group of 900 people who followed a man named Jim Jones to Guyana. They believed Jim Jones when he taught them, I am the real Jesus. I am Jesus reincarnated. Follow me to paradise. So they followed him from California to Guyana where they found a horrible thing. At the end, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jim Jones ordered, the real Jesus ordered all of those people to drink Kool-Aid that had been poisoned with strychnine. The people who refused to drink it were shot. They injected and they, they squirted the poison into babies' mouths. They all died there, following the real Jesus, the reincarnated Jesus. Our beliefs have real consequences in the real world. And untrue beliefs that we latch onto are dangerous and destructive. There are deceivers, then and now. As John wrote this letter, I know this is 2,000 years ago, but stay with me. 2,000 years ago, he started to see groups pop up that claimed sort of to be Christian, but they weren't. And they really took off in the second century after the church began. This group were known as the Gnostics. It's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. It's the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, silent G. We've just taken the Greek word into English. We made it a silent K, no. And so... These Gnostics claimed to have a special knowledge or insight about Jesus that other people didn't have. They even wrote their own Gospels to compete with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're like, we have the real scoop on Jesus, and we've got the real Bible. We've got this secret knowledge. Now, if you've ever read or watched the movie The Da Vinci Code, you've heard of the Gnostic Gospels, at least one of them, because he references in that, in his work of fiction, he refers to the, the Gospel of Mary. That's one of the Gnostic Gospels that these guys wrote. Um, you can go to the library right now. You can get a, a book that contains all the Gnostic Gospels. There's no secret here. They're out there. You can read them if you want to. So here's one of the strange things that these Gnostics started to believe. They had secret knowledge of Jesus. They also borrowed from Greek mythology and, so, and Greek uh, philosophy. I'm sorry. So one of the views they held was that anything that's spiritual is pure and good and anything that's physical, like your body, is evil. So just to give you an example of how this kind of breaks down, though, if everything that's spiritual is good, what do you do with demons? They're spiritual. Are they good? What do you do with Satan, who's a spirit? Is he good? See where this just starts to break down? What do you do with the incarnation of Jesus Christ? If everything that has flesh and blood is bad, what do you do with God becoming man? See where this is from? So the Gnostics, in the, and you read their Gospels, it's like weird. 
They start teaching things like Jesus, yeah, he was here, but he wasn't really. It's kind of like he was an avatar. One of the Gnostic Gospels says he appeared to walk, but he didn't really. He didn't leave footprints. He just kind of hovered over the ground. A little hovercraft. I don't know. And another Gnostic teaching was a little bit different than that, taught that Jesus was just an ordinary guy, an ordinary Joe. He lived the first 30 years of his life, and then all of a sudden one day God just like took over his body. Bam. He's like on remote control now. God's like making him do everything. He's a little robot. Until he was 33 years old. At the moment before he was crucified, God left him on his own again. He's just a normal guy again. That's how they got around the idea that something that was pure and spiritual could be a part of something that was unholy and, 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 and impure. God wasn't really here. So do you see where John says anyone who says that Jesus didn't come in flesh and blood is not legitimate? That was the Gnostic teaching. And I only bring this up because even though it was something 2,000 years ago, they're becoming more popular again today with Dan Brown bringing out and there's other philosophers and scholars, and I use a, uh, they even call themselves Christian scholars, who say that the Gnostic Gospels should be held on the same footing as the Gospels in the Bible. And so there are people who are Christians who go, well, am I missing out? Is there something that the church hid and suppressed over all these years that, that we don't wanna, they don't want us to know about? Absolutely not. That's why I encourage you, just go read the Gnostic Gospels. Go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the Gnostic Gospels and see if you can keep a straight face to the whole thing. We're... T- Eyewitness testimony versus H.R. Puffin stuff. When you read the Gnostic Gospels, you're like, what are these guys smoking when they wrote this stuff? Half of it they plagiarized from the, the Gospels, and the other half is just weird. Saying that the Gnostic Gospels are on the same level as the real Gospels is like saying that the, uh, the biography that Abraham Lincoln's first secretary wrote after Lincoln died is on the same level as Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. They're not even in the same ballpark. The only people who do put them forward as legitimate have an axe to grind or a preconceived notion. I'm telling you, I'm not trying to hide it from you. Just go read it. I think you'll come to the same conclusion. If any of this really does interest you or it bothers you and you're not sure what to do with all of it, I would encourage you to get this book. It's called The Case for the Real Jesus. It's by Lee Strobel. He just talks to experts who just walk through all of it. I think you'd find it to be very helpful. Now, there are other groups out there who claim to have a legitimate teaching about Jesus but they're, they're off base. I'll just warn you with this. If you're going on vacation this summer, be careful where you go to church. There are liberal Christian churches and groups out there, probably more the pastor than the people in the church, who believe that Jesus was a good man, but not the God man. There are many churches out there today, and I, I'm still shocked by this, but there are churches who are pastored by guys who do not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't believe that he died and rose from the dead. Uh, I think, why would you even be a pastor in a Christian church if you don't believe that? So if you like, for instance, go, oh, there's a Christian church, but in parentheses behind it it says disciples of Christ, that church is probably pastored by somebody who believes that. So just be careful where you go to vacation, church on vacation. Uh, Mormonism. Mitt Romney running for president kind of brought Mormonism to the fore. Good people. I think they're they're incredibly moral people. I'm not disrespecting Mormons. However, they have some bizarre teachings about Jesus. Mormons don't believe that Jesus is God's son either. Well, he's one of many of God's sons. That actually Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. That Jesus is polygamous. And it just goes on and on. The Jehovah's Witnesses. You ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door and offer to sell you the watchtower for 30 cents? They believe that Jesus is not God's son either. They believe that Jesus is a created being. That he's actually the Archangel Michael. Okay? I know Islam is not a Christian teaching, but Islam looks at Jesus and they say that he is a prophet of God. But he's not as great as the prophet Muhammad. He's just one of the prophets of God. 
See, these are just some of the teachings that are out there today about Jesus that John's warning us about to say, hey, there are some incorrect views about Jesus, so be aware of this. So how do you respond to some of this stuff? When you run across somebody who is teaching something, whether it's on TV or a book you're reading, and it's like an incorrect teaching about Jesus, what, is, what does John tell us to do? Well, he's very strong in verse 10. He says, if someone comes to you and claims to be a Christian, but they're not bringing the teaching of Jesus, don't bring them into your house or welcome them. And he's very strong even in verse 11 where he says, if you do welcome them and show them hospitality, you've become a partner in their wickedness. So don't show them fellowship. So it kind of makes me think, all right, does that mean I can't invite the Mormon kids in when they come over and at least have a, conversa- a polite conversation? I don't think that's what John has in mind. Sure, invite them in, open the Bible, study with them. But don't allow them to stay in your house for six months either while they do their mission. And then, then you're like a partner in their teaching your neighbors false things about Jesus. So You've got to know where you draw the line there. Here's the bottom line. Stick to Jesus. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because you trusted him to save you. If you're not there yet, you're still thinking about it, that's fine. But if Jesus is the one who's saving you, stick with him. Stick with the authoritative teaching from the eyewitnesses. He'll the one, he's the one who will lead you to, Christ, to, to God. He is God. In fact, the Bible is very clear about this. No one can come to God except through God who became man, Jesus Christ. A guy named Steve Winger uh, said he went on a ski trip recently, and he was very surprised. He was out on the slopes skiing, and he saw a blind person skiing. Never seen that before. It was the oddest thing. He said this blind person was skiing down the slopes. He had a brightly colored vest, so everybody knew who the blind person was skiing. But how do you do that if you're blind? Where do you, how do you not run into a tree? That blind person was following very closely an instructor who called out what to do at every point going down the slope. So you had this instructor about two feet behind him. You had the blind person. The instructor would say, lean left, and they'd lean left. Let's swerve right. Let's slow down. And Steve said over the next several days, I saw several blind people skiing. They all made it down the slope safely because they were able to lean right behind that instructor and listen closely and follow him down the slope. Friends, that's how we follow Jesus. We trust him to lead us to God. We follow him so closely. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. I'm telling you the truth here. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we can trust him. So follow him. This morning, you know, the band's going to play. We're going to share communion. Here's what I just invite you to do with this. If you've trusted Jesus, stay close to him. Learn what this says about him. And if you have not trusted him, if you're investigating this, but if God's put it on your heart and you know today's the day, why not trust him today, accept him, obey him, and be immersed in baptism? Why not do that today if you know that's the right next thing you need to do? Would you stand right now as we sing?